Now, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, this is one of the many, many examples in the New Testament of a the fact that the Greek um, language has seven verb tenses when we have three, and we actually have more verb tenses by combining uh, verbs to make complex verbs that are present and past. But this actually means, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, which means keep continually building you up, and to keep giving you the inheritance among those who are all be being sanctified, who have been sanctified, are being sanctified, and are going to continue to be sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit and the, and the Word of God in their life. So we see from this verse that the Scripture is a tool of God's grace. And what we're looking at in, the, in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the three primary ways Jesus Christ comes to us. Jesus Christ, our theme verse, is that of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Grace keeps growing. Grace begets grace. And the, the law was given through Moses, uh, which was grace in itself. But grace and truth were empowered. They were realized. They were instated through Jesus Christ because he is G G grace and truth. The living word of God is Jesus Christ, and he is grace and truth. And so growing in grace is always growing in, in communion, in fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's uh, being filled with his spirit. It's knowing his heart. It's knowing his ways. It's being, uh, being commissioned to be part of his ongoing mission in the world. His mission today is the same as it was in the Gospels. It's the same as it was in the book of Acts. And the church is the primary agent of of that mission, and you are members of the church. So I want to read John chapter 8, 31 through 34. Uh, space doesn't permit me to always put the whole scriptures in the teaching, so I'm going to read this from the New American Standard. Jesus, therefore, was saying to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, it was always those who had believed that were justified by faith, that were made righteous, that were, that were grafted into the family of God and the people of God. The people of God were always the descendants of faith, never the biological descendants. Uh, and Jesus understood that clearly. This Jesus teaches in John chapter 8 exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 4, that it's that by those that are of faith that are the people of God. And so those who God was revealing uh, th those people in the crowd who God was revealing to their spirit and who were willing to follow that revelation that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he was Yahweh, God among us, the uh, Lord of all. These are the people Jesus is addressing when he says, therefore, to the Jews who had believed in him, if, and I, I want to put a mathematical thing. There's a thing in math that uh, I'm sure uh, Tony and Sidney like. There's a little thing called if and only if. Uh, just to kind of emphasize that if not, then not. If you abide in my word, which means dwell in, remain in, continue in, live in all the time. Uh, this, this is a crisis in American Christianity today. The, 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 the Jews and Christians have always been called the people of the book. And most of us don't live in the book. Most of us have very little time. Some of us spend more time on movies, video games. Uh, other forms of entertainment and just nonsense than we spend in the Word of God. 
if you remain in my word and my word remains in you, then you are truly disciples of mine. So he's saying, if you don't do that, you're not a follower of him. And in the New Testament, there was not this separate categories that we have. Today, we have people who think they're believed and saved because they've had certain experiences with the presence of God, such as praying the sinner's prayer or even getting baptized in the Holy Spirit or sensing God's presence in worship. But the the Bible never differentiated Christians and believers from disciples. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, to be a follower. And he's saying, this is the lifestyle of followers. Though a follower remains in my word, and they are truly disciples. And if you remain in his word, and you're truly a disciple, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, all day long, all week long, we're constantly dealing with a, a phenomena that has grown up in the last 30 years or so in the church of people who uh, have experiences with the Lord, touch the Lord in worship and so forth, but can't get free. Jesus Christ came to set you free from fears, from addictions, from pride, from self-righteousness. He came to set you free. And if you abide in his word and his word abides in you, you'll know the truth. That is, you'll experience the truth and the truth will set you free. So uh, Joshua 1.8, I'm also going to read from that real quick. Uh, this is part of... Uh, Moses' last uh, commission to, uh, to Joshua. Joshua had been his disciple at this point for 40 years, pretty, pretty long period of discipleship. Uh, and Joshua was now being ordained to take over the leadership of Israel. And he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. What do we talk about when we get together? Do we talk biblical studies? Do we talk theology? Do we do we say, I always loved, there was a brother in the Bowling Green Church named Mark Everly. And Mark Everly would always say when you talk to him, what's the Lord been showing you lately? <laughs> and uh, it is like, you better have something. Uh, you better have something that the Lord's been showing you lately. Um, this book of the law will not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. And the word meditate means to chew the cud. It means actually to swallow it, spit it back up, chew it some more, and swallow it again. You'll meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do. We have divorced in American Christianity. We're going to talk about some of the reasons why today. But we have divorced the doing from the, from the knowing. And the Bible never does that because the Bible is a, a book written by Hebrews for a Hebrew worldview and a Hebrew mindset. You'll be careful to do according to all, not your favorite parts, that is written. For then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have success. And the Bible's view of prosperity and success is very similar to Jesus saying, you'll be my, truly be my disciples, and the truth will set you free. Uh, those are really about the same concept biblically. So... Um, Though I, I want to start by just by by saying as emphatically as I can, I could I could spend the whole forty minutes on this. Somehow you've got to cry out to God. You have got to seek God. You have got to become a person of the book. You've got to become a person whose scripture is a regular regular part of your life. Most everyone I know who has gotten free from addictions, from fears, from selfish ambition, has been a person who the word of God was a significant part of their deliverance. 
Now, um, to help you with this, we have a we have a, Emily and I are going to be starting to put hopefully on the website soon. But we have this available. All you have to do is email Emily or me, and we have a we have a Bible teaching called the Bible on the importance of Bible study. And it's four pages of scriptures arranged by 14 themes about why the Bible says you need the Bible. And it starts with a, a Roman numeral one before we get into the 14 uh, themes and all the Bible verses. It starts with three tidbits on how to build a hunger for the word of God in your life. But the hunger for the word of God in your life has got to grow strong enough to smash the hunger for frivolous things. We are an entertainment-filled culture that spends hours on frivolous crap that is rotting our minds and our spirits and our character. And I'm not against movies. I'm not against Facebook. Uh, the elders of our church commanded me to get on Facebook, and I try at least once a month to get on Facebook <laughs> and, and stay on it as long as I can stand, which is normally about 15 minutes. And, uh, and, and I usually get on two or three times a month, but, and I try to respond, and I always put an apology that I don't get on Facebook more. But I, I don't have time to spend my life on frivolities. And I'm, I plead with you, have a relationship with the Word of God that doesn't leave you time for useless nonsense. Even if you're going to watch movies and so forth, get some culture in them, get some character studies, get some history, get some content, not just shoot them up, special effects. And, you know, any brainless idiot can do that stuff. We... The church today looks too much like the world. God, Jesus came to give you a better life than that. He came to give you abundant life, and the abundant life doesn't look like the world around us. They are not living very abundantly. Now, moving from there, I want to talk about 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 and Psalm 119.160. One of the major doctrines of the church in many centuries that was really emphasized by the reformers in their doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, is the doctrine called the plenary inspiration of all scripture. People say, well, you shouldn't have so much intellectual content. Well, why not? I don't understand that. But um, plenary just means full. The, that It means that every part of scripture is inspired by God. The two main verses that establish that doctrine are, are at the bottom of page one. All scripture, and all means all, is inspired by God. It doesn't mean your favorite proof text. It doesn't mean the gospels and, your, and the epistles and your, and your favorite portions of Psalms and Proverbs. It means the whole scripture is, the word inspired is theos pneumatos. Pneumatos meaning breathed. It's breathed of God, theos meaning God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. It's profitable. Why do we spend our lives on things that aren't profitable? We spend hours on things that are not profitable, that are just chewing gum for your eyes. Enter entertainment has basically degenerated in our culture to some kind of a diversion whereby it's just mental, you know, it's just like running your engine on idle all the time. And so, you know, so you don't have to think much. It's an escape. That's a better way of saying it. Thank you. And um, 
Christianity is never an escape. It's a going through in, folk, in, in breaking into reality and truth. Uh, it's for, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What kind of good works are you doing? Whose life are you changing? What important roles in the team are you playing? Uh, Psalm 119, 160, I like even better, the sum. Now, a sum is a sum. It's a mathematical term. Uh, if you want to get to the number 27 and you want to get there by adding 9 plus 9 plus 9, uh, it doesn't get you there if you decide to take out one of the 9s. So 9 plus 9 is only 18. It's not 27. It's not, it's not the sum that adds up to 27. So uh, if you just know parts of the Word of God, then you don't know the Word of God, and you don't know the truth, and the truth is not setting you free. The sum of your Word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Now, I want to quote, if I can without crying, from one of my favorite books. It's John Bright's book written in 1952 or three uh, called The Kingdom of God. And uh, it's a classic. And just to put some dating on that, that's uh, this book was published 60 to 61 years ago. I believe the copyright is, is 1953, but the actual... Um, the actual um, printing, thank you, is, two, is, is 1953. Okay, so I want to read, um, read from this book. This book, as its title indicates, is concerned with an idea of central importance in the theology of the Bible. For the concept of the kingdom of God involves, in a real sense, the total message of the Bible. Not only does it loom large in the teachings of Jesus, it is found in one form or another through the length and breadth of the Bible, at least if we may view it through the eyes of the New Testament faith from Abraham, who set out to seek the city whose builder and maker is God. To grasp what is meant by the kingdom of God is to come very close to the heart of the Bible's gospel of salvation. But the book has a broader... Hopefully I can help help us with enough history today to, under, to help you understand why I get worked up about this. The book has a broader aim to come to, to, come to grips, if possible, with one of the fundamental, fundamental reasons for the current neglect of the Bible. He's saying this 60 years ago. The problems he's addressing here are more than 10 times as great today. I actually attended a church that was considered the most on fire denomination in Christianity in the 1960s. Uh, the church had approximately 300 members of five or 600 attenders. And I only met two people who were both on staff paid pastors in the, in the several years we were there that actually knew the Bible very well. The book has a broader aim to come to grips if possible with the, one of the fundamental reasons for the current neglect of the Bible. Indeed, one might go so far as to say that Protestantism will not forever survive if steps cannot be taken to remedy it. We may not forget that the Protestant churches all began in a very biblical protest, have always claimed the Bible as the final source of authority, and have never allowed that any hierarchy may stand between the believer and the Bible. Uprooted from the Bible, we have no proper place to stand. We cannot, in fact, be Protestant, and I would change that to Christian. 
It is therefore no light thing that the Bible should have become such a so strange a book to the average churchgoer and to many a minister as well. Surely many a reader will complain that the Bible is a most confusing book of very unequal interest, so varied in content that he's unable to follow a line through it. Much of it is scarcely comprehensible, much is perplexing, and much plainly dull. The reader that feels that much of it says nothing to him and he is tempted to skip in the end, if you persist in reading the Bible at all, he confines himself to favorite snippets here and there. In any case, there has grown up in the church alongside a total neglect of the Bible, a dangerous partial use of it. As a church, we declare that the Bible is the word of God and we draw no distinctions between its part, but in practice we can confine our use almost entirely to selected sections, the Gospels and the Psalms, portions of Paul, and ignore the rest as completely as if it had never been written. The result is that we not only neglect much that is valuable, but what is worse, miss the deepest meaning of the very parts we use because we lift them from their larger context. Now, I don't want to jump ahead to what I'm going to cover a brief uh, selected history of the church today. But I don't want to jump ahead to that too much. But I do want to say that John Wycliffe, the bright, the morning star of the Reformation, John Huss, uh, faint, still, still honored in Czechoslovakia today, uh, and many, many others died for their standing up to the church of, its, of their day to say everyone ought to be able to read the scriptures for themselves in their own language. William Tyndale, a merchant who was often exiled from England because he was uh, had Protestant sympathies whenever there was a Catholic monarch, did most of his business from Europe. He, a big part of all the major Protestants of their day, they were merchants who brought various goods and services, uh, traded them from the Far East and from Europe to the English uh, islands, to you know England, Greater Great, Great, Great Britain. But every one of them was also involved in using their, their merchant status as a way of smuggling the Bible into, into England so that the average person would be allowed to read it. Yet we don't have time for it anymore. We have time for movies and video games and Facebook, but we don't have time to study God's word. And it's become a tragic situation. Over and over and over, I, I meet Christians who are bound up by various addictions, fears, confusions, uh, etc. Not progressing toward the call of God on their way. By the way, when Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for broad is the gate and wide is the gate that leads to destruction... And, and follow by the narrow way, for broad is the way and uh, that leads to uh, destruction. He's not talking about salvation. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's teaching two disciples about how to be a disciple. And he's saying few disciples are the ones who actually find the call of God on their life. Because narrow is the way and narrow is the gate. He's the gate and he is the way to life. And few... Are, of disciples follow into the fullness of the call of God on their life. Now, going over to the next part, 
paradigms. Let's look at paradigms. Again, this may take me, hopefully they can edit this off the tape, but I got to kind of blow my nose a little bit. There's a concept called paradigms. And again, I try not to be too intellectual, but this is an important concept. A paradigm is a set of assumptions, concepts, or values and practices that constitutes a way of viewing reality for the community sharing them. Christian uh, churches have paradigms. They're a set of glasses, if you will, that you view things through. And whether you know it or not, when you go to God's word, you have assumptions that the culture around you has given you about uh, that filter what you actually get out of the Bible. And one of the things that I've come to understand very deeply, especially in the last few years, uh, lots of books like uh, Hellerman's book called uh, the, When the Church Was a Family, one of our top recommended books, another book by J.P. Moreland called, called Love God with All Your Mind, uh, a disciple of Dallas Willard, who incidentally died a couple weeks ago. Um, the, these books have helped me to understand more and more and more that what's happening today is that we have paradigms that we're approaching God's word from that are so in, that, that come out of our culture, both our religious subculture and our secular subculture, that blind us to what the scripture is actually saying to us. And it's going to take a thorough study of God's word, systematic theology, biblical theology, and historical theology. Theology just means the study of God's word. And we have to study it in the historical context. We have to study it systematically, and we have to study it within the context of each book and what's its purpose and style of literature and so forth. But paradigms are, are held by academic disciplines. Uh, in the 1970s, when I first read The Structure of Scientific Revolution, which is a, is a book about how paradigms shape what science, uh, what assumptions are, are uh, taken in science and what dictates even what's a good question, uh, what's good methodologies, I was uh, very impressed by the book. And then his ideas began to spread to other disciplines. And in 1991, I was watching some videotapes uh, for a new job I had and uh, working for a guy that Larry and I know named Greg Jackson. And uh, it was all about uh, various things in business. And they were using Thomas Kuhn's concept of paradigms to, to say even business has its mindsets and its paradigms that totally color what we see by the facts and things that are happening in business. And you have to get down to studying things on the paradigm level. I remember talking to a very famous professor who I won't name. Uh, there's a monument to him at Bowling Green State University. He's, he was uh, very close to me, uh, but he was very anti-Christian. And I, we, we were pressing on this point at, when he was teaching at Rutgers University well, late one night at three or four in the morning. And I said, if, you, if your paradigms are wrong, then the, everything you're doing academically is, is wrong. And that means you're, live, you're, doing, you're devoting your whole life to something that's an illusion. And after several hours of talking about worldviews and paradigms, he said, you know what? I get it. I see what you're seeing. If my assumption, he was an atheist and a hater of God, if my assumptions are wrong, then everything I believe and do is, is foolishness and it's, it's, it's an illusion and I'm living in a fantasy world. And he's, I just don't choose to live my life on that level. And he went on to be the national best researcher in his field, a field that's very anti-Christian. 
paradigms are assumptions that every one of us have. What I'm hoping to do today is give us a little history lesson in point D that will help us understand that paradigms have developed in Christianity since the, since the uh, Civil War that have caused us to be totally blinded to what Scripture is really saying. You know, we have separate white black, and black churches. The whole point of Christianity was, to, it was reconciliation. We have suburban churches who would never, who have $4 million buildings that would never lift a hand to actually help somebody in need and actually help them make their way. We, we, we might give charitably and we might have gospel missions and so forth, but the, the biblical way of discipling someone into the full abundant life of Christ, we would never spend the time that it takes to do that. And I can go on and on about paradigms that we have that, that are just not even at all related to Scripture in our very churches. Before I get to that, though, I want to I help us with a very important concept when we understand the Word, word of God. The Word of God actually comes to us three ways, and I'm going to give us two now, mention the third, but I'm going to develop the third in my last point, um, if I get that far today. The, the first is the word incarnated. First and foremost, bigger than this Bible is Jesus Christ, the word became flesh. This Bible, as John's helped us see in two of his series that he's done, is about Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In, in, in Revelation 19, he's called the word of God. John 1, he's called the word of God. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So all this, we have to go beyond the written Word, with the Word inscripturated, which is the second type of, uh, and we have to encounter the powerful ministry of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we're deceived. It's an abstract theory. And for a number of reasons, Christianity has degenerated into abstract theoretical doctrines and concepts that Christians fight and argue about, that, have, that, that don't cause us to, to encounter Jesus and extend his kingdom. And I just need you to understand something. Jesus is, in, in Acts chapter 10, Peter's famous sermon to Cornelius and the Gentiles, the first great sermon to the Gentiles. Uh, Peter says this in Acts 10, 34. He says, now I, um, he says, um, I started to quote X, my the other verse. Uh, he, he he says, "You know of Jesus Christ, a man anointed by God, who went about doing good, and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil." I'm here to say that if our Christianity isn't power enough, to, powerful enough to 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 deliver you from evil, if it doesn't include healings, deliverances baptisms in the spirit, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, uh, everyone being able to prophesy, people encountering the grace to release them, then it's become a theo theoretical abstraction to us. And we may, we may intellectually believe all the right things, but orthodoxy is supposed to lead to orthopraxy. On Grace Christian Fellowship's website, it says that we believe that right thinking leads to right living. 
you know, if it's not setting you free to live for Christ, if you're constantly dealing with the same old, same old uh, bondages and hindrances and character problems, and you, and then, then you're not encountering real grace. You've reduced it to theoretical thinking. Jesus came to set you free. And that's what he went about doing. And that the church's mission is to set free those who dwell in darkness. Now, in Luke 24, uh, Jesus talks about, he explains them the scriptures, and he covers the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which for a Hebrew thinking person meant basically what we call the Old Testament today, all of it. And he says it's all about him, every bit of it. Now, I want to get into some historical perspective today. I'm going to stop at 1020, so we'll see how far I can get with this, and, and then I may have to, uh, the point E, I'll probably have to do a, a part 4C of this series. Uh, these are some things that whether, you, you know what, a lot of people live like an ostrich with their head buried in the sand. And, and people say, well, I don't really want to study that or think about that or whatever and so forth. Well, if it's controlling you, you really need to do some thinking about it. And I'm here to submit that this, the history I'm about to talk about is having more impact on your daily Christian life than you could ever imagine. Now, I'm. this is a very, very short history lesson, and I'm just centering on the points that have stolen the word of God from us in its full impact and power. First of all, in the early church, you need to understand that Jesus said in John 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, he would lead and guide in the, the apostles into all the truth. Now, he continues to do that all the time through all the church, but he did it in a very specific way to the apostles who gave us the New Testament, the apostles and their disciples. Every New Testament book is either written by one of the original 12 apostles, Paul, or one of the immediate disciples of the apostles, like Luke and Mark, who were disciples of Peter. Okay, James was a disciple of the early 12. He's not James of the 12. He's James, the Lord's brother, who became the senior pastor in Jerusalem. So um, the early church, when you read your Bible, the, your Bible was written in the Greek language, but it was written by Hebrew-minded people. Only Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of, of Acts, was not a Hebrew. All the other 25 books in the New Testament were written by people who grew up as Hebrews and were educated in Galilee. Now, Galilee was the northern part of Israel, and it was very different culture than Judea. Judea had a much more pharisaical religious culture, much like, say, fundamentalism in our day. And Galilee had a much more vibrant faith. And when you were raised as in Galilee, every young man was required to, to, to memorize the first five books of the Bible by the time they were 12. Now, today, we have people who've been Christians more than 12 years who hardly know their Bibles. Every young man memorized the whole of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy 
by the time they were 12. You weren't allowed to do what was called your bar mitzvah until you did that. Okay, so, however, there was a system where uh, when you were 12, you were invited by the better rabbis to continue your studies. And the better rabbis would only take on students who had memorized the other parts of the Old Testament. Interestingly, when Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, and so forth, he's actually calling guys who'd been looked over by the other rabbis. And um, that's an interesting fact in itself. But uh, that's probably getting into too much. I, I need to be brief. The it, It's important for you to understand that the Hebrew mindset never separates what you believe from what you do. In the Hebrew mindset, what you do is the key to understanding what you actually believe. It's like oftentimes people who are helping people learn how to schedule business leaders and so forth will say, let me look at your schedule and I'll tell you what your real values and priorities are. Okay, so the Hebrew mindset, when the church began to move into the Gentile world, for the first several centuries, the Hebrew mindset transformed the, key, the Greco-Roman culture in the new, by the New Testament church. Now, by the second and third century, there was both, there was kind of a marriage or a, um, a synthesis of Hebrew mindsets and some Greek mindsets, some of which were good because there's a doctrine called common grace or general revelation that God has created all men and even fallen men still have the image of God. And so the church uh, began in the second and third century to use Greek logic and Greek thinking to write first rate apologetics. And in the second century, the church, through Origen, Justin Martyr, people like that, began to drive out the heresies of Gnosticism and other things that attacked the church and began to respond to the uh, second and third century, began to respond to the attacks from the faith by the unbelievers. And they used Greek reasoning to do so. And for the first uh, quite a few centuries of the church, there was, some, there was kind of a dynamic interplay between Hebrew mindsets and Greek mindsets in the, in, in the scripture using both. Now, what happened, though, is over the centuries, some people can trace some events as early as, as AD 180, um, but over the centuries, Eastern Christianity uh, around Turkey and Constantinople and, and Egypt and Palestine and and where Israel is today and so forth, and Western Christianity, where Rome and England and other uh, churches were, began to develop some different uh, emphasis and nuances. For instance, Eastern clergy always married. Western clergy began to, to stay celibate, partly because Western Christi Christianity was on the frontiers of of hostile barbarism and, and, and missionaries in the West that were going to Ireland and England and, and what's today Germany and so forth were, were, uh, were dying for their faith. So um, in the East, gradually the concept of mystery began to develop, and that's the idea that the Word of God says it. Uh, it's irreconcilable rationally, such as God predestined, foreknowing, and predetermining all things, and we having a choice. You cannot reconcile those ideas logically. And in the East, 
there were the ideas why bother let's just worship him <laughs> let's leave it in the realm of mystery uh in in the east uh jesus said this is my body and this is my blood and in the east they just said great let's worship him and take his body and blood in the west there became all kinds of systematic the theological discussions about how does it become his body and how does it become his blood? What's, what's the actual mechanics of that and the science of it and the logic of it and so forth? Now, both systematic theology and a certain amount of just, just bowing down before the truth and worshiping are valid and needed. And while the East, the East and the West stayed united in their, in, in the, in what was called one Catholic church. That doesn't mean uh, Roman Catholic. We, we, we don't use the word Catholic in the creeds in our, in our uh, church because too many people go, are you Roman Catholic? You know, because they don't know vocabulary. But, it, but Catholic means that there was one church that was united under one Lord, Jesus Christ. And both the East and the West felt that was a very, and all the North, all the North African bishops and so forth, bishops of Hippo and so forth, Carthage, they all believed that the, the Catholicity of the church was more important than their agreeing about every nuance. And so the church, uh, when it when various um, threats to the church emerged, the church would call what was called an ecumenical council, and they basically had principles of how to work out these challenges to the church and stay one and, and stay united. And during the first eight centuries of the church, there was there was what was called seven ecumenical councils. Now, the average Protestant today would say, that's just a bunch of crap. I'm, I'm devoted to the word of God. Well, it was this, the first Council of Nicaea and the second Council of Nicaea that decided which books should be in your Protestant Bible based on a longstanding tradition of which books the church had always agreed were the word of God from the very first that they were written. They weren't doing something new. They were acknowledging what always had been. Now, the problem is simply this. Uh, eventually, there be, uh, the East and West grew further and further apart. Uh, there became a great divide between the clergy and the laity, and gradually an idea began to develop that the clergy should know the scriptures and not the, every person. That developed in both the East and the West. And, uh, but eventually, in 1054 AD is the date that most people mark the Great Schism, where a cardinal, a papal legate, and that is a papal messenger, uh, went, went to try to work out some things with the patriarch of Constantinople, that, who was kind of the leading patriarch in the East. They couldn't agree, and uh, they excommunicated each other. Uh, actually, the, the Roman guy excommunicated the Constantinople guy, uh, without any authority, by the way, from the pope or the other leaders in Rome. But the, uh, most people date what's called the Great Schism from that time. Now, East and West have always been in some dialogue since then, but for the most part, they've grown up separately. And it's been a great loss to the church because it's broken our influence in the world. And more importantly, not more importantly, nothing more important than that, sorry. Correct that statement. But also importantly, uh, the West became very oriented toward Greek thinking, that is systematic th theology only, 
with very little room for for mystery. The East became very oriented toward mystery with a almost total negation or or, or uh, abrogation of systematic theology. Now, what's happened since then is Western Christianity has more and more become an intellectual abstraction and less and less an experience. Now, that none of this happened overnight and so forth, uh, but that, that's an important piece of the puzzle. Along came, I'm, I'm going to have to stop, I'm past my time. Along came the Reformation and the reform there and the world i guess we'll just pick up at the reformers the next time but i i what i want to take us through i just want to give us uh you know how in the news they go we'll cover such and such and then they go to a commercial they i forget what they call that a lead in or something but they try to keep your attention i guess uh, i really want to i really kind of want to invite you to the to hear the next part of this series next week by saying this, eventually we had what was called the modernist fundamentalist controversy, which developed after the Civil War and split Protestant Christianity into two main ways of thinking. Now, Protestant Christianity has split into hundreds and even thousands of denominations, but there's been a few primary mindsets in those groups. And uh, both the modernist and the fundamentalist developed completely new modern paradigms for how they approach the study of Scripture. And what I want to help us see next week is that those very paradigms take out the the wholeness of Scripture and cause it to be misunderstood and misinterpreted and contribute greatly, as John Bright is saying, to why we don't see the whole of Scripture as being exciting and interesting, because we miss are misreading the whole of Scripture. So that's what we'll get into uh, next week.